Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 70. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on April 26, 2022, in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States, from the beginning without presentism. This episode is a sidebar, which is our term for an episode that is off the timeline of the history of the Americans. The term sidebar is my way of signaling that the episode need not be listened to in sequence. I often say that I am following my muse, by which I mean that I don't really have a plan, or more accurately, I am willing to ignore my plan when I see something that interests me. So it was this week with a decision handed down by the Supreme Court of the United States only five days ago, on April 21st, 2022, in the case of the United States versus Vallejo Madero. The decision itself is not terribly interesting. By an eight-to-one vote, with Justice Sotomayor dissenting, the court held that the United States Constitution does not require Congress to extend supplementary security income benefits to residents of Puerto Rico to the same extent it makes those benefits available to residents of the states. The court's result was pretty predictable insofar as it followed long-standing law, holding that because Congress chose to treat residents of Puerto Rico differently from residents of the states for purposes of taxation, it could do the same for benefits. It's the concurring opinion of Justice Neil Gorsuch that interests me. It is essentially a history of the judicial decisions that govern the extent to which the United States Constitution and the rights thereunder apply to territories of the United States that are not states. I thought it was so good that I would read it as its own episode. Before we get to Justice Gorsuch, a little background is in order. In 1898, the United States and Spain settled the Spanish-American War and the Treaty of Paris, which came into force in April 1899. Under the treaty, the United States took control of Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines indefinitely, and Cuba temporarily. Also in 1898, the United States effectively took control of Hawaii. For the first time, the United States had an overseas empire. Also, for the first time, it governed large populations that it had not already stripped of rights by conquest and war, that would be the Indians, or subjugation into slavery. The question quickly arose, what would be the rights of those people under the United States Constitution? This was politically fraught for all sorts of reasons, some of which are offensive by today's standards and some of which are not. Among the reasons that would not be criticized today, many Americans were uncomfortable with the idea that the United States was assembling an overseas empire. The potential sources of law to settle that question about the rights of people in overseas territories include the Constitution itself, provisions in international treaties, including the very same Treaty of Paris, and acts of Congress. I'll spare you the nitty-gritty. Suffice it to say that the extent of the constitutional rights of the millions of people living in the newly acquired territories were decided in a series of Supreme Court cases in 1901 and the years following, which have been known 
as the insular cases. With some nuances, the insular cases created a distinction between incorporated and unincorporated territories, and that the residents of unincorporated territories were not entitled to the protections of the Constitution. Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines were unincorporated, but Hawaii was incorporated. With that background following is the opinion of Justice Gorsuch in the case of the United States versus Jose Luis Vieo Madero, decided only five days ago. I'll skip the citations, but interject with a little commentary as I go and conclude with one or two additional thoughts. And one other thing. This being a legal opinion, it's full of quoted language, especially in the early part of the opinion when Justice Gorsuch cites a bunch of old scholars and the fairly archaic stuff they said in support of the argument that constitutional rights should not extend to residents of the unincorporated territories. I'm not going to be all quote-unquote through that because it would be very clumsy. If for some reason you can't pick up from the context that I'm quoting some other scholar quoted by Justice Gorsuch or Justice Gorsuch himself, you can go look at the opinion, which I'll supply a link for in the show notes uh, on the website and so forth. So you can track that down if you need to do. So with all of that, here with Justice Gorsuch concurring. A century ago in the insular cases, this court held that the federal government could rule Puerto Rico and other territories largely without regard to the Constitution. It is past time to acknowledge the gravity of this error and admit what we know to be true. The insular cases have no foundation in the Constitution and rest instead on racial stereotypes. They deserve no place in our law. The insular cases were the product of what John Hay called a splendid little war, ostensibly waged to liberate Cuba and avenge the sinking of the Maine, The Spanish-American War proved a boon for the country's burgeoning colonial ambitions. The aging Spanish Empire was in no position to defend its island possessions, and several fell to American forces in quick succession. Under the ensuing peace treaty signed in 1898, the United States took possession of Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines. But these acquisitions, hard on the heels of the annexation of Hawaii, soon ignited a fierce debate. Some argued that our Republican traditions prevented the United States from governing distant possessions as subservient colonies without regard to the Constitution. Others sought to devise new theories by which the Congress could permanently rule the country's new acquisitions as a European power might, unrestrained by domestic law. Leading members of the Legal Academy provided influential support for those in the second camp. Their work culminated in a series of articles in the Harvard Law Review in 1899. Christopher Langdell argued that the Bill of Rights was, quote, so peculiarly English that an immediate and compulsory application of those rights to ancient and thickly settled Spanish colonies would furnish proof of our unfitness to govern dependencies or deal with alien races. James Bradley Thayer contended that there is no lack of power in our nation to govern these islands as colonies, 
substantially as England might govern them. Abbot Lawrence Lowell submitted that, apart from treaty or legislation, possessions acquired by consent or cession do not become a part of the United States, and constitutional limitations do not apply. Such rules, he said, are inapplicable, except among a people whose social and political evolution has been consonant with our own. The debate over American colonialism made its first appearance in this court in the form of a tax dispute in Downs v. Bidwell, a 1901 case. Pursuant to the Foraker Act, Congress erected a civil government in Puerto Rico and imposed a tax on goods exported to or imported from the new territory. After incurring a $659.35 tax bill, an importer challenged the act as inconsistent with the Constitution's Tax Uniformity Clause, which provides that all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. To answer the question whether the act complied with the Constitution, the court resolved that it first had to decide whether the Constitution applied at all in Puerto Rico. Ultimately, a fractured set of opinions emerged, employing arguments similar to those advanced by professors Langdell and Thayer, just as Brown saw things in the starkest terms. Applying the Constitution made sense in contiguous territories inhabited only by people of the same race, or by scattered bodies of native Indians. But it would not do for islands inhabited by alien races, differing from us in religion, customs, laws, methods of taxation, and modes of thought. There, Justice Brown contended the administration of government and justice, according to Anglo-Saxon principles, may for a time be impossible. On his view, the Constitution should reach Puerto Rico only if and when Congress so directed. Justice White offered a different theory that drew on Professor Lowell's thinking. To Justice White, the Constitution's application depended on the situation of the territory and its relations to the United States. In some cases, Congress might express an intention to incorporate a territory into the United States at a future date. In a territory like that, the Constitution must apply fully and immediately. But in other cases, Justice White argued, only fundamental, if unspecified, aspects of the Constitution should have force. In his judgment, Puerto Rico fell into the second category and remained foreign to the United States because unlike territories in the American West, Congress had not done enough to indicate its intention to incorporate the island. Still, it would be a mistake to overstate the gap between the theories advanced by Justice White and Justice Brown. At bottom, both rested on a view that the nation's right to acquire and exploit an unknown island peopled with an uncivilized race for commercial and strategic reasons, a right that could not be practically exercised if the result would be to endow full constitutional protections on those absolutely unfit to receive them. Well, Peter, this is what comes of empire building. In dissent, Chief Justice Fuller expressed astonishment that Congress could keep a territory like a disembodied shade in an intermediate state of ambiguous existence for an indefinite period. 
Justice Harlan criticized the court for engrafting upon our Republican institutions a colonial system such as exists under monarchical governments. And Justice Harlan dismissed Justice White's supposed middle ground, which he could find nowhere in the Constitution's terms. I am constrained to say that this idea of incorporation has some occult meaning, which my mind does not apprehend. Later decisions blurred the line between Justice Brown's approach and Justice White's even further. Eventually, a majority embraced Justice White's incorporation theory, including its suggestion that certain constitutional protections are fundamental and therefore apply even in far-flung, unincorporated possessions. At the same time, it became clear that very few constitutional limits on the power of the federal government could be relied upon in the newly acquired territories absent a clear congressional statement. Even the right to trial by jury, the court concluded, was not fundamental enough to apply to unincorporated territories like Puerto Rico. It did not matter to the court that by the time it reached the question, Congress had already granted Puerto Ricans U.S. citizenship. In the court's estimation, the locality was determinative of the application of the Constitution, not the status of the people who live in it. And on the court's account, Puerto Rico's localities included compact and ancient communities that had not yet developed the impartial attitude or conscious duty of participation required of citizens by the Anglo-Saxon jury trial. The flaws in the insular cases are as fundamental as they are shameful. Nothing in the Constitution speaks of incorporated and unincorporated territories, Nothing in it extends to the latter only certain supposedly fundamental constitutional guarantees. Nothing in it authorizes judges to engage in the sordid business of segregating territories and the people who live in them on the basis of race, ethnicity, or religion. The insular cases can claim support in academic work of the period, ugly racial stereotypes, and the theories of social Darwinists. But they have no home in our Constitution or its original understanding. In this country, the federal government derives its powers directly from the sovereign people. McCulloch v. Maryland, citation I mention only because it's one of the most famous cases in American history, and is empowered to act only in accord with the terms of the written Constitution the people have approved, Marbury versus Madison, same point. Empires and duchies in Europe may have subscribed to the doctrine that the people were made for kings, not kings for the people. That's James Madison in Federalist 45. Monarchical and despotic governments may possess the power to act unrestrained by written constitutions. But our nation's government has no existence except by virtue of the Constitution, and it may not ignore that charter in the territories any more than it may in the states. The Insular Case's departure from the Constitution's original meaning has never been much of a secret. Even commentators at the time understood that the notion of territorial incorporation was a thoroughly modern invention. The Insular Case's deviated, too, 
from this court's prior and longstanding understanding of the Constitution. In 1898, the very same year as the Spanish-American War, a lopsided majority of this court judged it beyond question that the Constitution's jury trial guarantees reached the territories of the United States. Nearly 80 years before that, the court held that the Constitution's Tax Uniformity Clause constrained legislation governing the District of Columbia. In between, this court reached similar conclusions in case after case. With the passage of time, this court came to admit discomfort with the insular cases. But instead of confronting their errors directly, this court has devised a workaround. Employing the specious logic of the insular cases, the court has proceeded to declare fundamental, and thus applicable even to unincorporated territories, more and more of the Constitution's guarantees. That solution is no solution. It leaves the insular cases on the books. Lower courts continue to feel constrained to apply their terms, and the fictions of the insular cases on which this workaround depends are just that. What provision of the Constitution could any judge rightly declare less than fundamental? On what basis could any judge profess the right to draw distinctions between incorporated and unincorporated territories, terms nowhere mentioned in the Constitution and which in the past have turned on bigotry. There are no good answers to these bad questions. This workaround, too, has proven as ineffectual as it is inappropriate. Perhaps this court can continue to drain the insular cases of some of their poison by declaring provision after provision of the Constitution fundamental and thus operative in unincorporated territories. But even 100 years on, that pitiable job remains unfinished. Still today, under this court's cases, we are asked to believe that the right to a trial by jury remains insufficiently fundamental to apply to some 3 million U.S. citizens in, quote, unincorporated Puerto Rico. At the same time, the full panoply of constitutional rights apparently applies on the Palmyra Atoll, an uninhabited patch of land in the Pacific Ocean, because it represents our nation's only remaining incorporated territory. Now I'm going to pop down to a footnote, which is really just an interesting historical factoid, but this podcast is largely about interesting historical factoids. So here's Justice Gorsuch's footnote. The atoll lies approximately a thousand miles from Hawaii. When Congress supposedly incorporated Hawaii as a territory, it included Palmyra, then a Hawaiian possession. Ultimately, however, the atoll was not folded into Hawaii on statehood, and it remained under federal control. So today, our bureaucracies endow that territory alone a capital T in their official lists, while the others, Puerto Rico included, earn only a lowercase t. That cracks me up. Back to Gorsuch. It's an implausible and embarrassing state of affairs. The case before us only defers a long overdue reckoning. Rather than ask the court to overrule the insular cases, both sides in this litigation work from the shared premise 
that the equal protection guarantee under which Mr. Vallejo Madero brings his claim is a fundamental feature of the Constitution and thus applies in unincorporated territories like Puerto Rico. Proceeding on the party's shared premise, the court applies the Constitution and holds that the conduct challenge here does not offend its terms. All that may obviate the necessity of overruling the insular cases today. But it should not obscure what we know to be true about their errors. And in an appropriate case, I hope the court will soon recognize that the Constitution's application should never turn on a governmental concession or the misguided framework of the insular cases. Asked why he dissented in those cases year after year, Justice Harlan replied that no question can be settled until settled right. We should settle this question right. To be sure, settling this question right would raise difficult new ones. Cases would no longer turn on the fictions of the insular cases, but on the terms of the Constitution itself. Disputes are sure to arise about exactly which of its individual provisions applies in the territories and how. Some of these new provisions may prove hard to resolve, but at least they would be the right questions, and at least courts would employ legally justified tools to answer them, including not just the Constitution's text and its original understanding, but the nation's historical practices, or at least those uninfected by the insular cases. Nor, in any event, can the difficulty of the task supply an excuse for neglecting it. Now, Justice Gorsuch drops another footnote, which I'm going to read because it's uh, interesting in its own right. In the last few years, some have attempted a revisionist account of the insular cases. On this view, this court's decision to withhold full constitutional protection from unincorporated territories now serves the beneficial end of safeguarding traditional cultures. Put aside the amicus briefs from the governor of Puerto Rico, territorial advocacy groups, and the U.S. Virgin Islands expressing vehement disagreement with the insular cases. Put aside, too, the uncomfortable truth that recent attempts to repurpose the insular cases merely drape the worst of their logic in new garb. At bottom, the Constitution's restraints and federal power do not turn on a court's unschooled assessment of a territory's local customs or contemporary currents in public opinion or academic theory. Our government may not deny constitutionally protected individual rights out of purportedly benign neglect any more than it may out of animus. Now Justice Gorchish concludes, Because no party asks us to overrule the insular cases to resolve today's dispute, I join the court's opinion. But the time has come to recognize that the insular cases rest on a rotten foundation, and I hope the day comes soon when the court squarely overrules them. We should follow Justice Harlan and settle this question right. Our fellow Americans in Puerto Rico deserve no less. I actually think that's an awesome opinion. I'm glad I read it to you. Back to me. It should be said that Justice Sotomayor, the sole dissenter from the decision in the Vallejo Madero case, dropped a footnote in which she agreed with Justice Gorsuch. 
that it is past time to acknowledge the gravity of the error of the insular cases. Justice Gorsuch is concerned with the institutional integrity of the Supreme Court, as we all should be, which is why he prefers solving the problem of the insular cases by overruling rather than diluting their worse effects by defining more and more provisions of the Constitution as fundamental. It is possible, however, to find more searing indictments of the insular cases in terms that Gorsuch perhaps did not use because he did not want to remind people of one of the Supreme Court's most infamous moments. Daniel Imowar, in his glowingly reviewed book, I've just read bits and pieces myself, How to Hide an Empire, a History of the Greater United States, writes, quote, The 1901 rulings are collectively known as the insular cases, but they are not the cases for which the turn of the century court is best known. Eight of the nine justices who decided the 1901 insular cases also decided Plessy v. Ferguson, 1896, the notorious case that upheld the constitutionality of separate but equal Jim Crow institutions. On the face of it, the two rulings have much in common. Plessy permitted segregation, the division of the country into separate spaces, some reserved for whites, others for non-whites. The insular cases split the country into what one justice called practically two national governments, one bound by the Bill of Rights, the other not. And, like Plessy, the insular cases were about race. The main majority decision contained warnings about including savages and alien races within the constitutional fold. Doing so, one of the justices concurred, would wreck our institutions, perhaps leading the whole structure of government to be overthrown. Yet there is one critical difference between Plessy and the insular cases. In 1954, in Brown v. Board of Education, the Supreme Court overturned Plessy, declaring separate but equal facilities to be incapable of securing equality under the law. Today we regard Plessy as one of the court's greatest mistakes, an infamously racist ruling that warped the Constitution to deprive millions of citizens of their rights. The insular cases are far less well-known. Until very recently, it was not unusual for constitutional scholars not to have heard of them. But they are nevertheless still on the books, and they are still cited as good law. The court has repeatedly upheld the principle that the Constitution applies to some parts of the country, but not others. That's why a citizen on the mainland has a constitutional right to trial by jury, but when that citizen travels to Puerto Rico, the right vanishes. Similarly, the 14th Amendment's citizenship guarantee to anyone born in the United States doesn't apply to the unincorporated territories. To them, citizenship came late and only after a struggle. What is more, it arrived as statutory citizenship, meaning that it was secured by legislation rather than by the Constitution and could therefore be rescinded. Puerto Ricans became citizens in 1917, U.S. Virgin Islanders in 1927, and Guamanians in 1950, Though in all cases, because their citizenship is statutory, it can be revoked, Filipinos were never made citizens in their 47 years under U.S. rule. American Samoans, 
despite having been Americans since 1900, are still legally only U.S. nationals. They are allowed to fight in the armed forces, which they do in extraordinary numbers. Theirs is ranked top of all 885 U.S. Army recruiting stations. But they are not citizens, as the 14th Amendment does not apply to them. Back to me. There are points with which we might quibble in Professor Immerwar's account, including that the Supreme Court actually never overruled Plessy. It narrowed the case to inconsequence. Perhaps the same thing's happening with the Insular cases. And also that the distinction between U.S. citizens and U.S. nationals, at least as it applies to military service, is a bit of a yawn. Mere green card holders who are neither are qualified to serve in the United States Army, and many do. But these are indeed quibbles. I'm with both Justices Gorsuch and Sotomayor, as well as Professor Immerwer. The insular cases should be overruled, not merely narrowed. We have many historical stains that are not nearly so easy to scrub clean. Now, longstanding listeners may wonder if I'm violating my own rule against presentism by interpreting past events, this time the insular cases, by applying modern values and precepts. I am not. The insular cases remain the law of the land today. In that regard, the law of the insular cases is no different than any other law enacted or constructed in the past. It would be presentist or anachronistic to say that the justices in the insular cases majority were evil or something. It is not presentist to say that we ought not live with the law of the insular cases today. Thank you again for listening. This episode was a bit different than usual. Recall that my plan, as always subject to revision, is to take next week off and return to you on roughly Thursday, May 12th. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends. Spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, no matter who owns it. Write a nice review on Apple, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And, of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time.